Holy Gospel according to John, the third chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus said, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world in order to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. For those who are just getting in here, I'm stuck in the pulpit today because we've been having some problems with our audio-visual Zoom feed. So I know they can see me if I'm here. This story this morning in Numbers is about a people stuck between promise and fulfillment. Instead of a land of milk and honey, they get a desert. The promise falls short. Deliverance at the sea leads into the God-forsaken wilderness. The Red Sea seems like just a point of unreal exhilaration between one kind of trouble and another. And the wilderness seems permanent. Those are the words of Terence Fredheim, Professor Emeritus of Old Testament at Luther Seminary. Back in 2009, he posted a brilliant, I think, an entertaining commentary on this passage from Numbers. Fredheim knows a lot about the Old Testament, but we can all say that we know a lot about the wilderness because we're in the wilderness right now. And we have been in the wilderness for a long time. And maybe we're starting to wonder if we'll ever find our way out. Fredheim goes on. The promise has been spoken, but who can live by words alone? The hope has been proclaimed, but the horizon keeps disappearing in the sandstorms. Trust in God turns to recalcitrance and resentment. Faith erodes with the dunes. And judgment is invited in to share one's tattered tent. The horizon keeps disappearing in the sandstorms. Those words describe, I think, every day of the last 12 months. We would just begin to see the horizon, right, on the other side of COVID and this hell of social distancing and shutdowns, and then the sands would shift and the story and the message would change and the promised land would just slip right out of sight again. Whether the government is trying to control us or whether the scientists are really just tossing out guesses along the way, the results are the same. Another day, another week, another month, maybe another year in the wilderness. 
Wilderness can bring out the worst in us. I know it is not bringing out the best in me. I don't know if it's true for you, but it's made me kind of grumpy. I whine a lot. And what's kind of scary is some days that seething, festering rage that I feel just brewing right beneath the surface, a rage that would love an excuse to come out. And I see a lot of that around me, so I know I'm not the only one. Two weeks ago, I left the church on a Friday morning, I mean Friday afternoon, admiring you know, the spotless carpets and the freshly mopped stairs going down to the west parking lot. Everything looked grand. Then on Sunday morning when I arrived here extra early, I had to be here by 8 o'clock because I was going to be really uh, leading the adult forum on Zoom and I had to get set up. I came in, I was still admiring the freshly swept carpet outside, the beautifully groomed carpet inside, not a spot on it. And then I went to go up the stairs and there was ice melt literally sprinkled all the way across every single step going up the stairs to this main level. And then again, not a spot of ice melt on anything else. There was no explanation for it except that maybe somebody had put it there. I'm guessing somebody got mad at something or with someone or maybe with God because this is the wilderness and it doesn't always bring out the best in us. It didn't always bring out the best in the Israelites either. The day they laid down their shovels and marched out of Egypt across the Red Sea, Reed Sea, however you want to read that, I bet they were dreaming about Mai Tais, right? In a balmy breeze somewhere, and buffet tables, and a beach chair with a great big red umbrella. But instead, they're in their own weird kind of lockdown. I mean, they're traveling, but the destination looks and feels a lot like hell. They whined. They felt put upon. They bicker. They're ready for a fight. Are we there yet? How much longer? We're tired of walking. How much further do we have to go? We don't have any food. We're sick of eating the food. Besides, the food tastes bad. We want McDonald's. We want Dairy Queen. We want anything but the same old sandwiches. We're hungry. We're tired. We're bored. We're fed up. And then they complained against Moses, and they complained against God. And suddenly, we're told pit vipers are crawling around the desert, getting into their tents hiding in the rocks, like Satan coiled up in the shadows of our hearts somewhere. And the Israelites are barefoot or wearing these little sandals woven out of river grass. People are getting bit, and when they get bit, they die. They are terrified. The snakes get their attention. Snakes always seem to get our attention. And they draw the conclusion that they have sinned in their attitudes and that God is sending the poisonous snakes to punish them for their ungrateful grumbling. But as Cameron Howard points out, you know, God and the narrator, neither one, say that the snakes were sent as a punishment or even that God sent them. It's just that old false logic we fall into where we say, after this, then therefore because of this. But maybe 
Cameron says, maybe God didn't send the snakes because of their quarreling. After all, you know, crying out to God in complaint is not actually condemned in Scripture. There's a whole tradition of that in the Old Testament. The Psalms are full of people griping and grumbling and even cursing God. So the people go to Moses with their confusion and with their confession. And Moses prays to God, and God answers by providing an antidote because God is always providing the antidote. God tells Moses to make a bronze serpent. The word for bronze and the word for fiery basically sound alike in Hebrew. So to make a seraph and to put it up on a pole and to set this in the middle of the camp. So Moses shoves it down into the sand where everybody can look at it. And whenever anyone is bitten by one of these snakes, they're supposed to look at the seraph and live. It's a weird story. You know, on another day in the Exodus story, Aaron, the brother of Moses, gets in trouble for making a golden calf when God seems to be absent. But now God is telling Moses to essentially do the same thing. Images of snakes are common. There are a dime a dozen amulet all over the cultures that surround the wilderness. The Canaanites and the other peoples worship these things all the time. So it smacks of idolatry and magic. But God said, and Moses obeyed and followed God's instructions and now when the snakes bite the people the people no longer die they continue to live Sharon Johnson said a couple of weeks ago it's putting the sin out there so that we can recognize the sin and live I like that it isn't the solution we're hoping or praying for though is it you know, just thinking about it gives me the heebie-jeebies. Can you imagine putting up a tent out in the desert at night and waking up with a rattlesnake on your chest looking you in the eye? And then you get bit. I don't care. Great, I don't die. But, you know, I wanted God to take away the poisonous snakes. I wanted to not get bit in the first place. I wanted to be out of the wilderness and into the land of Mai Tais and beach umbrellas. We wanted to get our shots and then start a bonfire in the parking lot and torch our masks. But God's solution isn't to take away the snakes or whisk us out of the wilderness. God's solution is to lift up the source of our suffering and transform it into the means of grace. Love doesn't promise, apparently, to end the suffering as Matt Skinner says, love carves out sanctuary in the midst of our distress. Sanctuary in the midst of the distress. God takes our worst fear, whether it's a snake God puts on a pole or the terrorism of seeing the Son of Man nailed to a cross, and God transforms our worst fear so that it becomes a symbol of hope and the means and the location for God's promise of eternal life. Most of life is wilderness. And in spite of our complaining, the wilderness isn't all bad. God is present, leading, providing, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, a voice rolling down the mountain like thunder, a whisper in the stillness after the storm.
Sweet, clear water gurgling from a rock. Flakes of manna glistening in the morning dew. The bread of angels. Mark Annan's father was moved into hospice care this last Wednesday, earlier this week. He is 91 years old. He's lived a good life, but it's hard to let go. It's hard to say goodbye. Yesterday, Mark texted me two photos, side by side. One was taken on his parents' wedding day 64 years ago. They're gazing adoringly into one another's faces. The second photo is of his mother sitting with her back to the camera, bent over his father's bedside, the same gaze of love in his father's eyes. This is wilderness. Holly Carmichael has been in touch this week. Tom in the hospital battling a failing heart, and it's scary. And every day the doctors change the plan and change the story. And one day they think it's a bad wire in the pacemaker, and they tell her it's going to be a really, really dangerous touch-and-go surgery, and she's terrified. And the next morning she wakes up and she has a thought in her head and she calls the cardiologist and she said, could it be a leaking valve? And the cardiologist cancels the surgery, checks up on her theory, decides she's right, and the fix for a leaky valve is a lot less scary. Tom's birthday is Monday. He'll spend it in the hospital. We can't surprise him with a visit, but he's alive, and all will be well. Wilderness. In the midst of a pandemic, we have found new blessings. In the face of hunger, there are food drives. In the face of death, there are the people who went to work so that we could have groceries and health care and gasoline, and police protection, and education, and funerals, and weddings, and there were construction workers, and utility workers, and contractors, and people who run the stores, and all the other things so that we can have what we need, and also what we just think we need. We forget that God is present, and that God can do all things, and that God is capable, and that God does fulfill the promises as Fredheim said, we forget that God makes use of the means available in every context to achieve good purposes. But the means is effective only because of the promise and the one who makes it. The protests are answered, the cries are heard quite undeservedly. There is a gift of healing where the pain experienced is the sharpest. Deliverance comes not in being removed from the wilderness, but in the very presence of the enemy, in the face of the enemy. Deliverance comes. The movement from death to life occurs within the very experience of God-forsakenness. The death-dealing forces of chaos get nailed to a pole. Whether we are at our worst whether we are at our best, God loves us. In the midst of the wilderness, we can look outside of ourselves at the Lord who gave his life so that we might live. 
For God has called us out not to die in the wilderness, but to take us into a new and promised land, a world of goodness and grace and love filled and flowing with milk and honey. For just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Jesus said, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Why? Because God so loves the world that she gives her only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world in order to condemn the world, but in order that through him the world might be saved. Amen.